Great to see you. Uh, and as always, I want to know, what are you doing? Who are you with? Are you in a watch party right now? Just let us know in the chat. Uh, before I get to my message, I just want to um, talk about a couple of things. First of all, if you've got my email, you know I talked a little bit this week about our reopening plan. And I'm just going to give you the basics here. Uh, we started with reopening our offices. That happened this week. On Tuesday, the staff was together. Woohoo! We had so much fun seeing each other's faces, uh, not through the glass of Zoom darkly. Uh, so that happened. And then the next phase for us is to begin to open our campus for events and groups that meet the public health order criteria. So on Friday, that actually happened. We had a super cool gathering here for our seniors. Uh, out here in the parking lot, and man, that was just fantastic. Big shout out to Teddy Tyfault, our high school uh, pastor, for uh, putting that together. She just loves those students so much, and I'm just so proud of uh, the way that we loved on our kids, and Jed gave him a challenge, and so that's, that's kind of phase two, and that's still in progress right now. And then uh, the ultimate, the hallelujah moment, is when we're all in this campus, all in this building, together. That's going to be so cool. And uh, again, we're just tracking with uh, public health orders on that and we'll keep you informed. If you don't get my email on a weekly basis, just throw that up in the chat right now. We'll note that. We want to make sure that you're hearing from us. You have to register at My Sunridge on our website up in the upper right-hand corner. Just give us your basic information and you'll know every week what's coming up at Sunridge. You'll know what I'm going to be talking about in my message. So uh, make sure that you're uh, staying well informed on that. The second thing I want to talk about are some names that you might have become familiar with over the last few weeks. Uh, Am Amud Arbery, uh, George Floyd, and Christian Cooper. And uh, as Becky noted, um, there's a lot to say about this. And I have to be honest with you as a pastor, as a as a flawed human being, I've wanted to say something, and, uh, but I've struggled with what's, what's the right thing to say. I'm not just Brit, I'm not fireman Brit anymore, I'm pastor Brit. And so um, I do have some things to say before we jump into our message on that. Um, I want you to know that I'm praying for justice, and I'm encouraging you to do so as well. You know, God says that he loves justice. And he's also said to his prophets that he hates injustice. And so I'm praying for that. And without all the knowledge, I don't have every fact and detail, but I can pray for justice and I can seek justice. And I'm taking Paul's words to heart out of Romans 12, where he says that as believers, we're not to be overcome by evil, but we are to overcome evil with good. And on that note, I just have to say, as, as a pastor and as, as just a flawed human being, that the binary thinking that is going on today about this issue and many others is not helpful. When I say, say binary thinking, I'm talking about, you know, there's this side and that side and nothing in between. And we seem to gather up in circles of thought. And <clears throat> we, those are the people that we interact with and they form all of our opinions. And I don't think groupthink in that way is ever going to help us. And so I'm going to say a couple things that are going to challenge you, especially if you're a white male right now and you're listening to me. Don't tune me out. 
But I, I want to read you an excerpt from a book that I've recommended in the past by Robin DiAngelo. It's titled White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Race. I'm going to put that up there and I want you to just listen to these words. Interrupting the forces of racism is ongoing, lifelong work because the forces conditioning us into racist frameworks are always at play and our learning will never be finished. Yet our simplistic definition of racism as intentional acts of racial discrimination committed by immoral individuals engenders a confidence that we are not part of the problem and that our learning is thus complete. The claims we offer up as evidence are implausible. For example, perhaps you've heard someone say, I was taught to treat everyone the same. Or people just need to be taught to respect one another. And that begins in the home. These statements tend to end the discussion and the learning that could come from sustained engagement. And further, they are unconvincing to most people of color and only invalidate their experiences. And many white people simply do not understand the process of socialization, and this is our next challenge. Now, I know that that stings for some of us listening today, but I want to tell you something. Ideas cannot hurt you. A thought that is different than what wants to get in your brain through that router that sends stuff away that you don't currently agree with, that idea cannot hurt you. It is not a dangerous thing to talk about or to talk with someone who sees the same situation as you differently. Now, I know that there are pastors that will pat you on the head and tell you everything is fine, or worse yet, pastors who will tell you that you are fine and that they are wrong. I'm not that pastor. I can't be, because everything is not fine. And justice requires truth, and it requires accuracy. Here's what I've learned. I have not learned all the aspects of racism in this country and in the world. What I've learned is what I don't know. And here's the thing. I thought I knew. I grew up in a racially diverse community. I have been an athlete. And so I've always worked side by side with people from different races and backgrounds. I've worked in communities as a firefighter and alongside people who are very different than me. I'm going to be 63 next month, and I thought I knew. I didn't know. There are things that I didn't know, that there was no way that I could know them. You see, I've never been black. I've never had a black experience or an Asian experience. I've never been a female so I've never experienced life through that filter. I've also never been a police officer. Some of the best people I know in this world 
are police officers. They are men and women of tremendous character. Now, I know what bad behavior looks like, and I bet you do too, and I know what criminal behavior looks like as well. Somebody, I don't have to have been a police officer to know that if I put my knee on the neck of a human being, that that's not just out of policy, that's out of bounds. And you know, I don't have to have been black or purple or any other color to know that to take a rock and throw it and hit an individual that I don't know, who might be one of the best human beings on the planet, who is there trying to do their job, I don't need to be told that's wrong either, or to burn down a business. See, we have a lot to talk about on this issue. So I hope what you'll do with me is that you'll pray, that you will protest even. But more than that, I hope that you will vote. And I hope that you will work for justice that you will call out injustice when you see it, that you won't sit there silently in all of its forms. And I hope that you will remain humbly accessible and open to being called out as well. I believe that the Christian community should be leading the way on this issue. Jesus said that we are to be peacemakers. And Paul said that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. To reconcile people is to bring them together. That's our calling as God's people today. Amen? Amen. So if you will join me in that, throw that up in the chat. Let's hear some amens in the chat right now. And we'll talk more about that in the future. Thank you for listening. Now... Believe it or not, I still have a sermon. So thanks for hanging with us. And it kind of ties into this whole thing because I think that we learn from an early age that a lot of people won't accept us, at least not unconditionally. Acceptance with human beings comes with conditions. It comes based on performance. It comes based on our use to them, kind of a quid pro quo. So our acceptance is rarely based on our value before God. It's based on um, our education, our economic status, where we live, our looks, our body shape, whether we have abs or not, our lifestyle, the color of our skin, or the uniform that we wear. Often, truthfully, we have difficulty accepting ourselves. Isn't that true? And those unaccepted, will isolate themselves from those that they cannot find acceptance with. Isn't that true with you? The unaccepted will drop out of school. They'll become estranged from their family. They'll quit their job. They'll move all to start over with the hope of finding acceptance. And when all hope is lost, they give up. And the same holds true for our acceptance with God. When we feel that God does not accept us, we'll move away from him. We'll drop out of church. 
will give up. When we feel unaccepted by God, we'll seek acceptance elsewhere in another religion, in a religion of our own making, or in many cases, no religion at all. And that's why what we're going to talk about today is so important. It's so important to get this right. And I'm going to read you something from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in which he's expressing a prayer of his. In Ephesians 3.17, he says, I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts as you trust in him. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love really is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it is so great, you will never fully understand it. Then, then you will be filled with the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Paul prays that believers would know the love of God, but not just know it. He says, I want you to know how wide, how long, how high, how deep. This tells me that the Apostle Paul was a fan of Motown music because he, what he was saying is, there ain't no mountain high enough, there ain't no valley low enough, there ain't no river wide enough to keep him from you. Not only does Paul say he wants us to know it, but he says, I want you to experience it. I want you to experience, which is different than knowing God's love. Experience the love of Christ. And he says, it's only then, it's only then that we can be filled with the fullness of life. We're in a series right now, we're in message seven of eight, in a series called God Is, and we're just looking at the characters, the characteristics of our creator, creator in order that we might reflect his image accurately. And we've said that who we believe God is is the most important thing about us because it affects every part of who we are. So this is something you have to grasp deep down. God is for you. That's the first fill-in in your note sheet if you're following along. God is for you. And until you grasp that thought and experience it, you will not experience the fullness of life. Paul puts it another way in Romans 8.31 when he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Knowing that God is for me allows me it frees me to live in such a powerful and free way. If God is for me, who can be against me? That is, whatever God asks me to do, whatever God calls me to do, whatever he requires that I step into and experience, he is for me. And because of that, who, who could be against me? Now to understand how God feels about us, that God is for us, we need to know a few things about ourselves. Here's what you need to know about you, and this is in your notes too. Number one, you need to know that you're his creation. You're made in his image. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. 
Have you ever been to Yosemite Valley? A couple of years ago, my family and some friends, we, we went there. And you know, if you've driven there, you know like when you come out of that tunnel and you see the Yosemite Valley from there, it blows you away. Or if you drive up to Glacier Point and you look down on the valley, or if you stand at the, in the bottom of the valley there by El Cap or uh, Half Dome and you look up, it's, it's just mind-boggling. And you think to yourself, God made this. He created the processes that like would create this thing of beauty that's so overwhelming. Can't you just see God sitting back and going, I made that. That's my creation. Hey, come see what I did. You know, just as we look at some of the breathtaking views that God has created in our world, and we, we kind of rock back on our heels and we're blown away, you know that you're a wonderful creation of God as well? You're as amazing. In fact, when God got done making man and woman and his, and, his, and, the, and his creation, he said, it's very good. Take a moment right now and either say out loud or put in the chat, I'm his creation. You're amazing. But there's another thing you need to know about yourself. You're also a sinner. Now, how can I be both, right? Am I, am I amazing or a sinner? Yes. You're both. David's prayer reflects that duality that all of us have. In Psalm 139, 14, he said, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. If you're, if you're a chatter, right now, put in there, I'm fearful and I'm wonderful because you're both. We have both potentials in us. Let me explain it this way. You ever taken one of those personality tests? I've taken a ton of them. And, you know, like, they're very consistent with me. I am the task-oriented, relationally uh, challenged uh, person. You know, uh, I'm an Enneagram 8. And so there's some great strengths with that. I'm, I'm the person that can get things done. I'm 10 steps ahead of people a lot of times, you know. Uh, I'm... I, I will grind and grind and grind. Some people said, you're a machine. But there's some downside to that personality too. I'm the person that will walk in a room and take it over. I'm the person that doesn't get all the things that are going on in the room. I'm the person that can drive people, staff, be quiet about this if you're in the building right now. I can drive people to exhaustion and not even know that I'm doing it. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God sees both of those about us. We are his creation, and yet we suffer from the brokenness of, hum of all humanity. Both are true about us. Now, why? this is why it's so important for us to know that we're both. Because of sin, you're in bondage. You need to know that about yourself. When we say God is for us, it doesn't mean that God is for everything about us. Because we're sinners, we, we tend to reject God. We want independence from God. Sometimes we think that God is oppressive and being obedient to him is somehow going to steal our freedom from us. But you know, when a fish jumps out of the water, he's not free. He's dying. This is a problem for Christians and non-Christians alike. 
And Paul talks about that in Galatians 4, in verse, chapter 4, verse 8. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. You were slaves to things. And he goes on to say in that section that it's also true of Christians. Why would you want to return to that lifestyle? See, we all serve something. We all bow down in worship to things. It could be our career, it could be our family or a spouse or even our kids. It could be ideology. It could be our politics. And we bow down to it. And it puts us in bondage. The recognition that we, that we are enslaved by sin, that we can be, that we can, it can be our master, should always keep us humble. You know, whatever you serve in place of God, it will always let you down. And we have a constant choice or a big choice of either choosing to serve the one who created us, who made us, or something else. Which do you think is going to be most satisfying or fulfilling? Lastly, the good news is that all of us, you included, you're the object of God's love and grace. See, most of us, we operate on this basis. If someone loves us, we'll love them back. They love us first, then we love them. But that's not how God operates. We've looked at this verse so many times, but Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, if you sinned less, God wouldn't love you more. And if you sinned more, God wouldn't send you packing. God never said, that's it. They've pushed me too far. I'm done with them. How do we wrap our brain around that? How can God be for us when we are so broken, when we are so fearful, but yet we are so wonderful? One of the things that I've repeated through this series is when I think about God, I think that Jesus is our best shot at understanding who God is. And I want to share a story with you uh, as kind of like a final wrap-up. It's going to take a little while. It's an excerpt from Luke's Gospel in chapter 7, and it's a story in which two people end up in Jesus' presence that... um, it would be very unusual for them to occupy the same space. There's an unnamed woman and a Pharisee named Simon. And there's no way that they would normally have been in the same room together. But it's funny how Jesus can do that. And in Luke 7, verse 37, Luke tells us that when a woman had lived, who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Now, that sounds totally weird to us. And, you know, it was totally weird to them. This, is, this would have been one of those super weird, uh, what is going on, super uncomfortable social situations that maybe you found yourself in. I mean, not the honorific uh, offering and pouring perfume on Jesus' feet, that's not, 
That's not unusual. That was done even in literature outside of Scripture. But for her to use her hair to wipe his feet, that was weird then. And it would be weird today. But maybe that's kind of like part of the story. That you have a woman who's, who is outside the normal bounds of society. And that woman and Simon couldn't have been more different. The woman, Luke tells us, had lived a sinful life, which is a way of saying that she was a prostitute. Likely of necessity. I mean, was probably the only way a woman without means could make a living and feed herself or her children. And it's funny, she, she is known, she's from that town, but she remains unnamed. And Luke doesn't tell us whether that's out of um, charity on her behalf or more a commentary on that she didn't really matter. And how she ends up at Simon's house is, it's not told to us. It's, it's unknown. It's likely that she heard that Jesus had been invited to have dinner with a religious leader in her town. It's possible that she'd heard Jesus preach before, or she may have just heard the gossip through the grapevine. But I think it's important to note the huge risk that she took. For a woman um, that lived that lifestyle to to be in the room with or to touch in this way an esteemed rabbi is totally out of bounds. And you know that, I mean, just put yourself in this situation, the risk that she took of humiliation and shame, it's huge. Something for all of us to remember when we encounter people that are outside the bounds of Christian faith or they show up at our church or they they express interest in your place of work in God, and yet they live such a different lifestyle than what you're comfortable with. She outs herself in that way, and she's taking a huge risk. But there was something about Jesus, something about him that told her that she wouldn't be exploited or demeaned or rejected. Something told her, even in her condition, that he would be for her. You know, I I imagine that some of you listening, you've taken that kind of risk. You think that you're that person that that really doesn't belong in church, but you've come to church. Maybe you're just dropping in online right now because someone invited you and you're thinking, you know, I I just have this impression of Christians and I know they're just going to blow me out when they know this about me. Some of you have become Christians and your life has changed, but that you, you think about that, that initial risk that you took, how it just felt so weird to be around Christians or in church. You took a huge risk, and you can identify with her. And that whole time, what you were hoping deep in your heart was that God would be for you, and that maybe even some of the people who name the name of God would be for you as well. Then there's Simon. Simon is a Pharisee. He's known. He's prominent. He's respected. 
This is his house, so he's likely a person of wealth. And because he's known, he's also named because he is an important figure. But note the risk that he's taking too. As a Pharisee, you know that like as you go through each gospel, the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, is building. And so for him to engage Jesus in his house risks a lot for him. He's stepping outside the bounds of, for him, what his social circle is. It's like he's stepping outside of that circle. He's taking a huge risk as well. And some of you have taken that kind of risk. You've had a religious background or a tradition background, and yet over time things didn't make sense to you. And the story of Jesus and the gospel caused you in some cases to move away even from a religion that you held or a way that your family thought or traditions that your family held and you you embrace faith in a way you didn't come from this immoral kind of background but it was a big risk for you to take Christ into your life because all of us know I mean even if you're in the right circle there are powerful forces of compliance that we, we risk stepping outside of sometimes just to follow Jesus. Simon f- suffers from a different kind of sin than this unnamed woman. In verse 39, Luke says that when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, that is, invited Jesus, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she He's a sinner. Now, how do they know that? How did Jesus know that he had said that? I mean, for one, we could say, well, Jesus is omniscient, so of course he knew his thoughts. But I think it's probably something different than that. Maybe he said it under his breath. It does say that when he saw this, he said to himself, talking to yourself, it's like, you know, I wonder if he knows. Like, and he's, you know, you've done that and then realized that someone overheard you. But I choose to think, and I mean, this is just Brit, okay? Like, I choose to think it was probably his body language that expressed his thoughts. See, self-righteousness and the smugness that comes with the power that's part of that, um, it's rarely declared, but it's pretty easily spotted. We have facial expressions and... Um, nonverbal ways of communicating. There's a smugness that comes off of one who is self-righteous. Um, we can kind of position ourselves in the conversation where we're kind of turning from that person because they're not worthy of us. They're uninvited, and there's all these passive-aggressive behaviors that can take place. Maybe, maybe you've seen that in a circle when you're talking, or maybe, maybe you felt it. Or maybe you've even been guilty of doing it at times. You see, Simon here would not have identified himself as a self-righteous, smug sinner. They both suffer from their own brokenness in this way. See, she's a sinner who suffers from rejection for all the wrong reasons. You know, she must have experienced moments where men 
desired her presence and then publicly rejected her. And she was rejected for all the wrong reasons and it had to be incredibly difficult for her to believe that God could be for her. She's just under this pile of guilt and all of her life she's been told, you don't belong. You only belong in this little secret world. That's the only place you're ever going to be wanted. But Simon is a sinner who suffers from, for, from acceptance. Again, for all the wrong reasons. For Simon, he's under this tremendous pressure to comply. To comply to a moral system that actually, as you read through the gospel, kept people from Jesus. And he knows that he has to continue to meet those standards if he fails, if he doesn't know the answer, if he doesn't follow the tradition to the exact nth degree, he's going to be rejected. And his moral superiority leads him to feel that he must comply in order for God to be for him. And it had to be incredibly hard for him to live under that and then also to realize that he needs the same grace that this woman needed. You see, we have this saying, um, uh, it's the same thing, only different. Doesn't make any sense, but you know what that saying means. They, they are the same thing, only different. They are alike. If you're following along in the chat, give me a shout on that. Give me a shout out on that. They are alike. And Jesus explains how in a story in verse 40, he says, he answers this thought of Simon. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. There's so much in that simple interaction. How rare is that? That when someone says, I have something to tell you. Not, not like I have a secret, but it's clear that this is constructive criticism and he's eager to hear it from this rabbi. And I'm just going to let Luke's narrative tell the story. In verse 41, Jesus goes on. He says, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. And neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Ding, ding, ding. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, you see what's happening here? He's talking to Simon, but he's looking at her. Do you see this woman? Which is a big question already, right? Do you see her? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then the other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So who needed this story? Both of them. 
You see, Jesus acknowledges the failings of both, and yet he is for both. They're so different, but he's for both of them. You can imagine how differently they saw each other, yet Jesus is for them. Jesus acknowledges she's a sinner, but so are you, Simon. In fact, this story focuses on Simon. Did you catch that? He tells the story for him, not her. He says, I have something to tell you, Simon. And although Jesus sees that they are both broken, he offers acceptance to both. He accepts her worship, tells her her sins are forgiven, and tells her to go in peace. And then he gently but firmly reframes for Simon his privileged worldview. What happened? I believe that the woman became a Christian. I believe that she became a follower of Jesus. We see how she responded. And you know, I tend to believe that Simon did as well. I think that because from the very beginning, he seems open to what Jesus is going to tell him. He says, tell me, teacher. So when you hear that story and we talk about like how God can be for us, who are you in the story? Are you like the woman You think that you don't belong in church at all? You can't even imagine that your place could be in a house of worship? Some of you would say, that's me. You think that everybody else has it together. That's me. Or are you more like Simon? That you often find yourself being the judge who you think can belong. You look around and you think, why are they here? You, in your workplace, you have people that you don't even make eye contact with because they live differently or maybe they got a potty mouth or, and, and you begin to exclude people. What, I wouldn't put it in the chat, but I would just say, silently that's me i don't know which one you are i have found myself being both at different times so how do we bear the image that god is for us in what we've learned today and there's just two quick fill-ins so i'm just going to knock these out right away number one accept it fully that's about you and god right and then be for people Be like God. Be for people. All people. Because God is for them. The last thing I'm going to ask you to put in the chat is this. He is for me. Type that out right now. And then right after that type, he is for them. And put them in capitals. Because he is for you and he is for them. God is for us. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I'm going to close with where I started. The Apostle Paul's prayer. Here's what he prayed. I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts as you trust in him.
May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love really is. May you experience the love of Christ. Though it is so great, you will never fully understand it. Then you will be filled with the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. What if we really believed that? What if today, the rest of the day, what if tomorrow when you wake up, that you really believed that God loved you more deeply, more highly, more widely than you could ever imagine, and you experienced God's love in a new and fresh way, maybe for the first time, by turning in faith to Christ. Maybe you've been a Christian a really long time and your heart has just developed calluses, not just against other people, but in understanding how much God loves you. I wish that I could puncture that so that it got back in there and your heart became tender to that idea. And then, here's the radical part. What if we began to see everybody else that way as well? What if we started praying that prayer for that person, the they, the them, the people that are outside of our circle, the people that vote differently, that look differently, the people that have a different lifestyle. What if we started praying that prayer for them and we said, I pray that they would have the power to understand how wide and how long and how high and how deep his love really is. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? God is for us. We are us. Let's pray.